Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate expression of a faith life. My name is Dom Fay. We have our regulars here, Sue Grimmett. Thanks for joining the podcast. Good to be here, Dom. And Peter Cat, thanks for joining us and letting us in your office yet again here. It's great to have this happening in this space, Dom. Thank you. This office was a an old surgery, wasn't it? It was the operating theatre of a hospital. So people yeah. often tell me they had their adenoids or appendix out in this room. <laughs> and we often contemplate on how much DNA must be lying around. <laughs> well, a beautiful spot then for the conversation we're having today, I suppose. You should get a one of those UV lights or whatever it Absolutely, is in here. Just yes. go around and see what you find. Well, our guest today is, I think, our first ever three-time guest on the On The Way podcast. Uh, I think it's this stage we can call him an official friend of the podcast. Uh, George Tripp, a spiritual director, therapist, artist. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us yet again, George. For thank you, Dom. Time number three. Yes, here we go. Here we go. And uh, today we are going to be discussing the concept of the shadow, which is, a, a, I guess, a really key um, way of understanding the human psyche and the, the human soul. Um, it, it might be new to a lot of people. Uh, it's something that isn't spoken about a great deal. It is something that, you know, it comes up in our conversations with probably each of you in this room relatively often, but isn't unpacked in, mm. in many instances. Uh, it, it does come largely out of the work of Carl Jung. And I know he's someone, George, you have spent some time, you know, reading and working with the theories of. And, and so I thought just before we get into the shadow, can you give a, a little bit of background on, I guess, Carl Jung and why he's been so influential or his, his, I guess his way of thinking has been so influential on, on your life and your work? Well, influential on my life and work, yes. Uh, I think that the main thing about Jung's work that I have always found incredibly important is that he is quite sympathetic to faith traditions that is, to the religious experience of the great people in the psychological sciences of the 20th century. He would stand out in this regard. A guy by the name of William Gagan, who was uh, an academic in Bangor, Maine, has written a book called Jung's Psychology as a Spiritual Practice and a Way of Life, and shows clearly how people who stand at least in the Western Christian tradition can access the insights of Jung to deepen and enrich their faith tradition and faith journey. Mm. And that was my experience from my teenage years, having grown up in a parish where the rector had studied in Zurich and had occasional correspondence with Jung himself, mm. as did the associates and then subsequently others around us. Now, if you have heard George's other two uh, episodes with us, Loving Yourself and uh, Dream Work, both of those were heavily influenced by yes, yeah. Jung's concepts of the inner village and of dream interpretation, mm. active imagination as well. Yeah, he, he's been my primary intellectual framework since I was a teenager. Mm. And I would say that I, I would have uh, not lasted as long as I did in the institution of the church if I hadn't had his way of looking at things, his lens through which I could look at the stories. And that, of course, continues. He offers a depth of understanding to the healing stories of the Christ figure that are very important to me mm. and demonstrate the transformational nature of the Christ presentation, the Christ image in Jesus of Nazareth. 
And I suppose, you know, the podcast is often about transformation, you know, not transaction of information or any mm. of those sorts of things, but, but transformation is at the core of it. Mm. And that ties deeply into to shadow work. So uh, I suppose as a, you know, vague way of starting it, George, when we talk about what the shadow is, mm. how do you answer that question? What is the shadow? I start by saying it's basically the unlived life of the individual. It's the other side of the story. Jung seemed to see life as a collection of opposites in pairs, complementary opposites, which he saw in nature and he felt the psyche was nature. We are nature. So he then used this kind of application to our experience to say that most of our experiences have an opposite side, a complementary side, and the two are held in dynamic tension with one another so that life is not either or, it's both and. Mm. The shadow is a part of that, uh, that equation of opposites. It represents the other side of one's story. It represents the opposite of what we would call the ego ideal. Uh, we've all grown up in families where we have been told what it means to be good. We've been socialized and enculturated by our families to behave in a certain way. So uh, Johnny, don't hit your sister, tells him something, but it also tells him what he cannot do and what's naughty or bad. That represses into the shadow. And his desire to hit his sister lives down there rather than up in consciousness. Uh, being generous, so the stingy one in us who really wants to keep all our toys to ourselves uh, goes into the shadow. And the shadow over a period of time builds. And I think about it as a, a warehouse full of three-drawer files in which I could put in things I don't want to know or I didn't <laughs> want to think about and filing them away back in the basement. And it grows with the individuals. So mm. as I grow up through my childhood, my teenage years and into adulthood, my shadow is growing as well on a personal level. Mm. So it's basically just the opposite of the ego ideal and it's the unlived life of the individual. It has for Jung both a personal and a collective side, which is a little more complex. Uh, the, the notion of the collective shadow is that my personal shadow and that which I will not face joins with yours and Sue's and Peter's and we begin to build a kind of collective sense of energy that is our denied, our avoided reality. And we'll find this in larger cultures and that becomes the kind of underbelly story of a people. And it remains alive and very uh, full of energy. Uh, and as long as it's avoided and denied, it becomes a danger in that it will seep up and shoot up at any moment through any kind of fissure or leak or crack you can find. Mm. Uh, so it, it's a very dangerous thing to avoid the shadow on a collective level. Also, it becomes incredibly problematic on a, on a personal level. So maybe to, to help point out where this is at play to make it easy for people to identify, can you think of examples, I guess, either in people's lives or, or collectively in our society where uh, maybe an unresolved shadow or an avoided shadow is acting out and causing some problems? Well, let's start with James Hollis, an American analyst who's written a remarkably important book 
uh, why good people do bad things. And he says the shadow is present any time you're uncomfortable in a transaction with people, conversation, talking about something or someone. If you begin to feel a twitching un discomfort, your shadow is operating and, and is kicking in. So that's a beginning place. Um, I need to pause here and just let you ask me another question because my mind is going in that direction. Go ahead. Well, I, I, I think the reason that this is so essential, I guess, to, uh, you know, point out where this is at play for people yeah. um, is because, you know, it, it sounds like just a psychological concept, maybe one that's a bit complex, hard to get y your head around exactly. But, you know, reading into what the shadow is, you can very quickly see how this concept actually forms much, if not, not, not much, all of the violence we see. It forms all of the people who seem to be in, I guess, disconnect with themselves, that there's a wrestling with part of themselves that they haven't accepted, that they've tried to repress, and that has kept coming out as a result. Okay, I do have an example I can share with you. I was standing in front of my house in California many years ago, on the sidewalk waiting for my wife to come out to the car so we could drive off. And a young teenage boy ran through the neighborhood down the street on the other side of the sidewalk. And I watched him run by and I thought, I wonder what's wrong. And was a bit tense. And I stopped and thought, why is anything wrong? Maybe he's late for the bus running to get a thing of milk at the little deli around the corner. Why does something have to be wrong? Mm. Because he was a Mexican. And it made me very clearly aware that I was in fact raised in, bred in, a white racist culture. And granted, my family didn't want to think that way. I mean, my brother and I would have our mouths washed out with soap if we used the N-word describing black people. We could say damn and we could say hell, but we couldn't say the N-word. In spite of all of that, I have to live with the fact that in my shadow, there is a racist person because it's a part of my cultural heritage and I'm stuck with it and it's humiliating. So, and, and that doesn't fit with the George Tripp that you would, I guess, and this is the ego side that you were talking about, that you would like to think you are, that you probably tell people you are, that, that you like to be in the world, mm. you know, because we all have that sense of ourselves as, you know, I, I know in my instance, I so often think of myself as someone who's quite gentle and calm in a sense. I don't get angry often. And so what happens is that, you know, when I do get angry, I tell myself, that's not me. That's not really me. You know, when anger does, oh, up, yes, that's not really is. me. And I suppose <laughs> that's that, the problem. That's what the shadow is, yeah. is that the, the, the parts that you have culturally or personally labeled as bad or, or wrong or unacceptable. Or your family has. Or, or your, your faith has. tradition has. Yes. Um, it's wrong to doubt. Yeah, so you repress faith this oriented. Or. But if you, then what do you do with your questions? Well, the last place you can take them is to the person who just told you you can't have any doubts. Mm. So how do you survive honestly in the culture? Yeah, Another yeah. story that I like to tell, I was visiting a friend uh, in Perth at UWA, which is down along the Swan River, and I was driving home late at night from where he was, and as I drove around the corner from the, the river and into the city, I came to a red light and there were people on the corners and not a lot, but somewhere around. Well, I locked the doors on the car 
And I thought, you never locked the doors on the car. Why did you lock the doors on the car? I was projecting the shadow out onto the unknown. Mm. Dark, strangers, and we do that. There was nothing out there to be rationally afraid of, but we're all afraid of who's behind the door on some level, in some way. And I yeah. thought, goodness sakes, here we go again. But we do. So we're scared of the stranger within. We're scared of the yeah. darkness, the shadow, right. the parts of ourselves that yes. pop up every now and then. And we think, oh, that's not me. That's not who I am. And it's critically important in terms of what I call radical inclusivity, which is my new catchphrase that I, uh, I try to live with. And that is trying to include all of those parts rather than pushing them away because they are here. Mm. They are in me, they're in each of us. And we need to bring them in rather than trying to get rid of them and somehow learn to enter creative relationships with him. We've talked about the village concept before and that's what we're talking about. Mm. The shadow needs to come in whatever form it takes. Yeah, so, so I suppose the question is then, you know, if I learned from a young age that it's wrong to be aggressive, that it's wrong to be mm. angry, you know, certainly tradition I grew up in, I learned that it's wrong to, you know, have any sense of desire, any sense mm. of particularly physical desire. All these, these things that I was told was wrong, that my unconscious learnt was wrong and pushed them into the shadow. Yes. You know, I suppose there's two options then. One is to, and this is the commonly taken one, repress them, pretend they're not there, pretend they're not me. Mm. What happens if you do that? Well, I think you end up in civil war. Mm. I think it, it was a John O'Donoghue who said most people live in a civil war. We don't have peace with ourselves, so we are in a constant state of violence mm. against ourselves mm. because we, we are fighting to keep the enemy, as it were, at bay, not realizing that all of that may be a rich resource, gold-plated, full of diamonds, lovely rich things that would enrich and make our lives much more full. Jung says in some place, not perfection, but completeness is what is expected of you. And I think it's an important phrase and building on Matthew 5:48, the word perfect translated there in the English is actually uh, more accurately translated completion, completeness. So there's a whole new agenda for the Christian community to recognize that our goal is not to be perfect. Our goal is to be complete. Mm. And that's why radical inclusivity is important to me. Everybody's in, and I have to just live with it. And the issue with the shadow is it doesn't go away. I mean, we're talking about so you take your last breath here. You don't fix the shadow issue and then get on with <laughs> light and you know sparkling stars and fireworks. It's with us all the time. I, I love what you've said before to me, George, which is that you hate people saying, let it go, because it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> That's right. If you're it angry doesn't. about something, people say, just let it go. It <laughs> yeah. doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. It just lives on in the shadow and like a naughty child pops up every now and then mm. and in an outburst the here. The guerrilla warfare. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A woman by the name of Janet Dallet, an American analyst who's retired living in Washington State, who did her practice in LA, has written a book called Listening to the Rhino. And she has an observation that I think has great merit, but it demonstrates the importance of shadow work 
on a collective level. Her idea is that if we continue to avoid our shadows in a collective sense, and she's talking about the people in the United States, and pushing that down, pushing that down, we create a swamp of this negative energy that floats under the surface of culture. Sensitive, fragile young people who really are struggling to find their way, living with ego strength that is, that is, is not in any sense sustainable and isn't really gelled in, in any solid way, are subject to fracturing and feeling negativity. And that negative energy makes its way up into their consciousness. So they get the gun out of their father's gun cabinet and go to school and create havoc. Mm. And she says, I think the gun shootings are living out our negative, unfaced collective shadow energy. And so the, the importance of the work in then, in, in, in light of her observation, is incredibly ramped up for us to look at and say, my god, I mean, these children are our victims, the ones doing the shooting. We're victimizing them by not dealing with our own negativity, our own shadow, our own unfaced life, our own bitterness and resentment and desire to hurt and revenge and so forth. I suppose it's hard for many people because we, do, we don't want to accept, you know, I, like the gut instinct is I don't want to accept that there is a, a part of myself that is racist. But, mm. but undoubtedly, growing up in suburbia, only surrounded by white people, at a school with almost exclusively white people, um, undoubtedly there is a part of me that is racist. And even as I say that, I want to push it in the back of my mind and think, no, 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 I've got past that. Yeah. You know? But, but that, is, that is the shadow work, I suppose. But it, it is so hard to accept that we aren't who we want to think we are. Yeah, John Sanford in one place says, facing the shadow uh, takes you down a notch or two, but a little humiliation usually doesn't hurt us. <laughs> and I, I have had the same issue in Perth again. Uh, we have a large influx of people from Africa and growing up in a segregated community in the United States, I want desperately, consciously to be open to anybody. And I do have people of color among my very dear friends, but I flinch when I see a black person I don't know. I just mm. do. And I'm humiliated by that. I just want to weep, but I, I can't make myself be different. It's just in the marrow of my cultural life to have that fear reaction. It's pre-verbal, it's pre-cognitive, mm. it just happens. And there it is. So. We live with these things. I have to live with this. I don't know how to rid myself of anything. So I suppose then, you know, if we have to accept that these parts are who are part of who we are, mm. you know, why? what can that do to help us actually heal them? Or maybe not heal them, but, but learn to live with them. Why, why would you not just go through a whole life saying, no, I'm not racist, I'm not racist? Why, what is the benefit, I suppose, in saying maybe that is in me? My experience is if you have a potential enemy in your own soul, that if you will step forward and put your arms around that person and give him or her a hug and hold them close and say, I'd like to get to know you better or you're here and maybe we don't agree, but I want you to be here 
and be a part of the family. Uh, I think it changes things enormously. It sets us free to be conscious of our limits, conscious of our failings, and allows us to act with conscious intention out of the best parts of ourselves. And my way of saying is that, yeah, there's a racist in me. He's just not allowed to go out to play. That's all. Yeah. I know he's there. I had a conversation the week before I came to Brisbane with somebody uh, who made a crack that was racist and said, oh, I'm not racist. I said, well, yeah, you are. <laughs> and uh, I could say it with some affection because I have the same issues. I'm racist in some way or misogynistic in some way. It's, this is just all the, who we are and the way we've been bred. What we can do is say, yeah, that's me. And now I'm going to decide how to be in the world. Thomas More in The Care of the Soul makes a wonderful comment about parents. And he says, if you had a negative relationship with your father, most people say, I'm never going to be like my father. And he said, you'll be exactly like your father. If you start by saying, I carry my father's spirit within me, now what shall I do? So I carry mid-20th century white racism in me. I carry some misogynistic attitudes in me. Now, how shall I live? So not trying to defeat the shadow. No. It's not trying to defeat no. it. It's no. trying to incorporate no. it and make peace with it. Yes, and, and allow it to be in the village. I mean, that's mm. the only way I can talk about it. That's my, because that's the way I operate. I think if you listen to the words that we're using here, you talk about defeating or allowing, you know, it's the energy levels that it takes. You've got all, uh, we all of us have, you know, the clamoring voices of our ego so much of the time trying to project a certain thing, uh, project a certain way of being that we believe ourselves to be. And it's not a peaceful way of being because we're constantly trying to defeat those other parts yeah. of ourselves. And it's, it's violent language, isn't it? Defeating and going into war and conflict, whereas allowing, um, you know, and it might only be fleeting sometimes but those moments when we can allow just that the relief of of letting all those voices be put to rest for a while yeah well and the, the other thing is to like one guy that i've recently been working with is is got a guy in the village named rage and he's a piece of work and he finally confronted him and i said what would you like to do and he said i'd like to punch his lights out and I said, okay, well, I don't know where that's going to get you. So we talked it through, and he finally realized he had to start a conversation with him. My point is, is that if we can look at anger and rage carefully, we begin to see that there's a very passionate energy in there for good that we can use. I still think it's an absolute marvel that women at the beginning of the 20th century got the vote in Western culture. And they did it through direct, nonviolent action. And they channeled their anger. They channeled it. They were clever and strategic. That's the trick. Draw on that rage mm. and say, how can I use this to affect the things I truly believe in? that I'm called to follow or that I want to see happen. What can I do other than punching somebody's lights out? I'm reminded of someone who I knew in the church I grew up in um, who was probably the most traditional marriage values person in the church and spoke about it all of the time, nonstop spoke about how, you know, it's so important to be, to, to love, to have a traditional marriage and whatever. And then the story came out, you know, 
Yes, when I when I was a little bit older, that there had been numerous affairs throughout that lifetime. Um, do, do you think that is shadow work at play when you ignore your shadow, when you think, no, 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 I'm none of that stuff, and you just suppress it and push it down? It's not going to be in any way healthily incorporated. It's just going to act up and pop out every now and then and cause I think you it mayhem. Will. Yeah, I think it will. And it is, it is by definition the shadow. Therefore, it's in the unconscious. So we're not really aware of it. And we're denying that the possibility even exists. And so it does the guerrilla warfare thing. It pops out from behind this rock or that tree and uh, takes over and humiliates us for 30 minutes and then we get on our feet and say, oh, that didn't happen, or that's, <laughs> oh, I'm, oh, that's not going to happen again. I think, in a way, for me, dealing with alcohol was a, another issue because I told myself for over 10 years that I did not have a problem, did not have a problem, did not have a problem <laughs> every time I'd go for another drink. And I finally faced the fact that I was out of control. And the, the, sh the sheer uh, burst of energy I felt when I chose sobriety in the first two weeks was absolutely staggering. I realized how much energy I was putting into denial and avoidance. Mm. And suddenly I just was raring to go because I wasn't telling myself a lie anymore. For me, um, discovering the shadow, especially the Jungian understanding, um, helped me understand the whole idea of demonic uh, in, in the Gospels. Mm. And for me, the demonic is the unacknowledged shadow just bursting out suddenly and taking over one's life. And and I think for me, the advantage of doing the shadow work is once you befriend, you de de befriend that part of you, it can no longer manifest itself as a monster. Mm. So when um, when my son was born, I dis I realised that I loved him so much, and I would I would. Um, willingly kill someone if they hurt him and Peter the pacifist had to come to terms with the fact that he had in his village someone who was capable of murder mm. yeah. and the choice I had at the time was either to say that is so not me that's never going to happen or with the help of my spiritual director it was actually acknowledge that murderer bring him alongside you, acknowledge that you care so much about someone, you are actually prepared to be a cold-blooded murderer in response uh, to them being hurt. And the likelihood is because that person is now part of you, you acknowledge that part of you, it's not going to burst out and kill someone. Whereas if I repressed it and someone had hurt my son, then I probably would have killed them. Mm -hmm. I'm much less likely to now because I know that that um, part of me exists. I've talked to that part of me and now it manifests in my life as a raging um, loyalty to my kids, mm. which means that I've at times gone into dangerous spaces with for my kids, like confronting teachers who have done the wrong thing about but but done it in a way that wasn't desiring to kill that person mm. because mm. the murderer and I were now friends and so um, I think I think the strength of doing our shadow work is that these parts of us as George said become our companions and so our anger becomes a tool um, you know I, I grew up in in a time when anger 
you know, anger was a bad thing. Being angry was a bad thing. Mm. And so part of my shadow was always repressing my anger. And occasionally it would burst out in ways that would take me by surprise. And then I would do the same thing you said, Dom, and say, well, that wasn't me and it won't happen again. And it tends not to happen now because I know that I have this anger in me and, it, and that part of my shadow is now um, hopefully more directed towards my passion for justice and my, yeah. the fact that I won't be benignly standing by if something injustice, uh, unjust happens. And, and I've found a way in the last 15 years or so to channel that anger in a way that is, means I'm actually more, I'm braver, even though, you know, even in the situations that scare the bejesus out of me, that the anger um, is unleashed in a way that is um, a more powerful energy. I think it's interesting that the men, you guys are talking about anger. I think uh, women repress anger, but possibly culturally more so because mm. good girls don't get angry, yeah, nice right. girls don't get angry. And I think the way it generally plays out, and I'm speaking myself as well, I, I watch resentment as a big trigger, a big flashing light in my life, and it's often where that anger that was told it can't exist goes down into kind of quiet, simmering resentment. And uh, women that um, can find... I had one year of my life when I just allowed myself to get angry, and it, I always call it the year of swearing because I had, I had <laughs> such a potty mouth that year. Um, but it was really helpful. Sorry, you know? That's great. <laughs> well done. It's yeah. a shame we weren't recording I'm the sorry, podcast I missed that it. Year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, it is interesting. I, I know that um, we've mentioned the work of Peter Rollins, the, uh, the Irish, um, I guess you'd call him theologian, philosopher before, and he speaks uh, at times about how every person is a haunted house in a sense, mm. that there are ghosts in there running around and that if you don't turn the lights on, if you pretend there's nothing in there, there'll be poltergeists and they'll knock things down and they'll yeah. cause havoc. Absolutely. But if you turn and face them and shine a light, they can transform into holy ghosts and actually walk with you in your journey in a sense. There is something bizarrely paradoxical about it though, that you almost have to accept your darkness to ensure you never become dark in a weird way. Do you know what I mean? Like you almost well, have to make peace with uh, that to make sure it doesn't happen. Yeah, I, well, I think that's right because once you've acknowledged it and accepted it and brought it into consciousness, then you are less susceptible to it overtaking you tsunami-like and knocking you over. And also, and Peter's example was very good, that you can then access that energy for good. You can access it and channel it into something strategically mm. because now you're working from a very conscious point of view and not being buffeted by anything coming through town. I um, actually a story just come to my mind when I was starting out in, in the radio industry and I was fiercely jealous but pretended I wasn't and anytime any other show any other announcer got a break you know I would be filled with resentment towards them mm. and you know I'd send them a message saying congratulations and pretend I was this supportive loving guy who was so happy for their success but deep down I was you know and I'd never acknowledged it but I look back and I'm like I was thinking they're bad at this and this and how did they get that mm. and um and it controlled me and honestly in hindsight destroyed some relationships mm. um and, and you know caused a lot of problems there were some people early on in, in my radio career who thought i was very arrogant and very brash and 
because that's what was coming out when I was pretending and <laughs> trying to be this gentle, supportive yeah. guy. It does, it does just that. It comes right up from be, you know, underneath and sneaks out and mm. takes us over, and suddenly we... Uh, uh, there's a line, I think it was, it was either Kelsey or Jung who said, the great line is, I don't know what came over me. It was yeah. Jung. I don't know what came over me. And he said, well, you should. <laughs> you jolly well should. It's you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Figure it out. Yeah. Well, that's and, and and it is interesting through doing just a, a bit of shadow work and accepting that I can get jealous. That jealousy's yeah. in there. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, made me sort of uh, feel a bit of compassion for that jealous part of myself. And then suddenly, it, it had no control over me. Instead, yeah. if when it might have acted out in the past, I would sort of just comfort it in a sense, comfort that part of myself. Mm. So, the only way to make peace, I guess, and, and stop the civil war, is to accept that everything's everything is you in a sense. Mm. And I know it does tie into you've said before, George, that if one human has done it, you are capable of yeah, doing it. Yeah, that's a quote out of uh, Hollis's work that if anyone can do it, I can do it, and he quotes. A Ro he says this is a Roman poet named Terence. Now I have a little trouble with poets in Rome time being named Terence. <laughs> hey, how you doing, Terry? I mean, it just doesn't seem quite right. But Terry the, the younger. The, the, quote, yeah, the quote is still important. If a human being can do it, I can do it. it that's basically yeah. the line. And I think it's important to name. I, uh, go ahead, Sue, and then I want to shift uh, something. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that you know we're, they're saying we, we don't know what came over me. It, it's true though that that you you mm, don't, you, don't. you know mm. that there's uh, sometimes you do some need to do some really deep work yeah. to work it out, noticing where the tensions are. But you need mm. dialogue partners, spiritual directors. You need other people. I think if you're being the hermit in the cave, mm. you're even less likely to know what's come over you because mm. you learn about yourself in relationships. And I, I was thinking about um, you know we can look at biblical characters. Think about Peter's denial of Jesus, you know, clearly Peter thought he was someone entirely different. You know, Peter Ooh. was the one who was always brashly, no, no one, I will die with you, Lord, you know, and yet, and you can imagine Peter when that cock crowed going, I don't know what came over me. You know, I, I didn't, I don't know. I would have thought I was a strong supporter of Jesus, you know, how... Um, so I, I think we have to also embrace, I guess, with some sympathy and compassion, the fact that we don't know ourselves and we need some help with that. Yeah, I, I, I have made peace with the fact that I will die a mystery to myself. I'm never going to know it all. And, and that's okay. I'd like to just shift this because we, I mean, we're enjoying this, the negative side of it. But Jung talked about the golden shadow. And in fact, he said, the shadow is 90% pure gold. And this is a side that's often missed when people talk about the shadow. It's usually seen as the little monsters. But what about the unlived life that we long to live out but for practical reasons of income or family values, we chose something else? And I suppose one of the, the best examples I had was a man who was worth lots of money and finance in law. And when he came to talk uh, for various reasons, he finally said, I just really wanted to be an artist. So he went looking for the child in him who was artistically inclined. And he had said, I left that little boy alongside the road a long time ago. Mm. 
because his obligation was to immigrant parents from the southern part of Europe who took menial jobs to make sure their kids would get ahead in this new country and make it well. And to pay them back, he took on their vision of himself. And in his shadow sat the artist. And I find that often for healing, in dealing with people that are very busy and very professional and high-flying, taking up the piano 30 minutes a day, writing poetry, playing the guitar, one guy got back on his surfboard. These are the things that bring us into touch with nature and our own creative impulse that balance out all of those things that society told us we needed to be. So there's gold in each of us sitting waiting to be discovered. Mm. And often it takes some kind of breakdown or crisis or something, a comeuppance of some kind that puts us in touch with this deeper person of creativity and who, cre who is a part of our whole picture and enriches the whole life from my point of view. So there's just this depth within each of us that we mm. so often don't know. We're just living at the very, <coughs> you know, the very shallow end. And if we delve deep, there's a lot in there that I guess it's like, you know, embracing every single aspect of, of what's lying inside. Um, why, do you, why do you think, I guess, that is something that is so foreign, not just obviously to our culture, that, that probably speaks for itself, but to our faith tradition? Well, uh, yeah, I'm very careful here because the why scares me. I can observe several things from my, my own point of view. Uh, and part of that, again, is through the lens of Jung, who felt that faith was the greatest obstruction to religious experience because people were encouraged to believe something that was delivered to them by someone else mm. and be content with that rather than risking the raw experience of engaging divinity on their own individual terms and naming it however it was meant to be named. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty uh, deep issue from my point of view that, that I think the church is being strangled by right belief mm -hmm. as opposed to helping people explore the extraordinarily mysterious, awesomely beautiful, terrifying experience of divinity through the dream, through the waves crashing on the shore, through the trees in the, in the garden. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, we are just surrounded with manifestations of divinity and we do not know how to look and we keep mindlessly from the neck up reciting uh, platitudes of creeds or whatever. Belief, I have to believe this. You should believe that. Huh? What does your soul tell you? What, what, what is your experience? This is, you know, I raised with you, Dom, and with the young people we talked with this week. What's your practice? What makes you well? What, mm. what helps you get out of bed and go, yeah, I'm going to do this. Mm. What is that? And it's rarely a creed. The word orthodoxy means right glory, it doesn't mean right belief. Yeah, there you go. And uh, the thing that drew me into religious faith was actually religious experience. Yeah. 
and eventually the need to have a group of people who I could share it with because before then it was was a detached experience and it was it was a bit shadow it was actually very shadow like because I had no reference point with you know, I had I had religious experiences but I didn't have any group of people to reflect on it with mm. Mm. and in the church amazingly I found that group of people only to discover that it was a f not always what the church was on about <laughs> and and you know as growing up I grew up outside the church yeah. and I had certainly encountered the right belief group of people who were very strong and kept on telling me what I had to believe and how I had to accept that evolution wasn't true and all of that sort of stuff um, but it was also through the church that I discovered the people who were really in like like worship was actually encountering mm. the mystery yes which is why I was drawn to sort of Anglo-Catholic style <laughs> worship because yeah. you know the incense and the color and all of that was the thing that actually gelled with my experience of God in nature well, that, and that gave me the language began to give me the language to explore it and it was reading Jung that sort of pieced it all together for me and one of my biggest laments is the fact that so much of the church represses religious experience even the, this idea that the Bible tells us what it's all about detaches us from the fact that the spirit is active and giving us new insights all the time and just as Jesus did um, you end up with revelations that seem to turn the whole thing on its head mm -hmm. but in fact it is just the next iteration of the uncovering of the great mystery that's before us and um, to me that's a very important point because yeah. uh, we uh, we keep going back to those stories and yet uh, this is a new time yes. and a new place and the real challenge of the of the people of the tradition is to be willing to step out on that edge yep, and find the new language for a new generation yep. all of that and it's yep. very exciting but it's also a bit scary Yes, yeah. it certainly is. And it's really, easier, yeah. easier, what was that phrase? It's easier to go for the flesh pots of Egypt yes. <laughs> to turn mm. back and say, no, nah, yeah. I'm not going to do this. Mm. Yeah. We, we do obviously see how often, and I'm just thinking in my own life, we outsource or project all of this stuff onto other people that, you know, instantly I can think of the people who are racist. They're not me, they're those people. I can even think of, you know, ways that I sh uh, might put down any positive nature of me. I can think of the people who are talented or, you know, but they're not me. Or people who are wise, they're not me. People who are loving, but they're not me. In, in a sense that you know, we, we just project all of these things outward rather than doing the deep inner work, I guess, and coming to know ourselves. I'm just interested, George, because I know that you, I think this is a Carl Jung quote, that everything that irritates us about others leads us to a deeper understanding or can lead us to a deeper understanding yeah, of ourselves. It's in, it's in memories, dreams and reflections. Which is an extraordinary quote, that yeah. everything that irritates us about anyone else, when someone comes on the news and they seem to be racist and you go, you have a reaction to it, that can lead you to a deeper understanding of yourself. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe when you see what seems a definition of toxic masculinity and you feel... And like angered by it or disgusted by it, that can lead you to a deeper understanding of yourself. How do, does anything that irritates you about another lead you to a deeper understanding of yourself? <laughs> Start with Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite. Um, 
Well, I think, first of all, that there is the, the projection issue of that person who is irritating often represents something that I, in certain circumstances, might do. Uh, so I'm watching myself, as it were, act out behavior. And I don't like it, so I don't like them. But I think the other part of that is that, that another part of me could be saying, I really deeply, deeply, at my best, do not support that way of acting or being or talking. So it can be both a sense of injustice or outrage at a, a human violation of dignity, but it can also be an issue of personal shadow. Mm. Uh, Peter mentioned Donald Trump. I, I, uh, he is no more power-driven than I am. When I was a teenager, working with my friends in a kind of what you call here the blue light disco, we call the teen canteen. Uh, my nickname among my peers was Napoleon. So go figure. <laughs> And when I was about 17, my therapist priest said to me, your lifelong issue will be power and its use or its abuse. And I think that's very true. I am very hot with energy and I can either blow people out of the water or I can empower them to raise up and be somebody. So I have to, whenever I see power being abused, I can have two reactions. One, you bastard. Or number two, you remind me of me. And both are true. It isn't just one or the other. A quote from Jung here, and I, before I read this out, I should mention, and this is probably because of the context Jung was writing in, it's masculine language he uses here, but he does write that if you imagine someone who is brave enough to withdraw all his projections, then you get an individual who is conscious of a pretty thick shadow such a man has saddled himself with new problems and conflicts. He has become a serious problem to himself, as he is now unable to say that they do this or that, they are wrong, and they must be fought against, because such a man knows that whatever is wrong in the world is in himself, and if he only learns to deal with his own shadow, he has done something real for the world. He has succeeded in shouldering at least an, a small part of the gigantic unsolved social problems of our day. Now, the reason I wanted to read that quote out, George, is because people might have got to this part of the conversation and, and thought that all of this is just to do with your own personal development, that it's important that, that you come to terms with your own shadow so you can be a better person, live a happier life, you know, that you'll make peace with yourself and end this civil war with yourself. But there is a real social and social justice element to shadow work, isn't there? I think there is, yeah, I th because I do subscribe to the notion that there's a collective shadow. I mean, what's the collective shadow of the... European Australian culture, especially toward Aboriginal people. Absolutely, I, I think there's a a lot of fear where I, I think it is in the shadow. I think it's suppressed. It's not very often named that there's consciousness that we're living on stolen land all the time, and that's yep. in our memory. And the the more we hide from the yep. truth of that and cover mm. up the stories, not mention it, I think that's playing out in everyone's lives, Absolutely. that everywhere you go, we're aware we're on stolen land and land that's been taken with violence. Yeah. yeah. After I read um, Dark Emu, I finished it with a deep sense of my own illegitimacy. Mm. And um, my response was to say, wow, fancy, because it just, I had this, 
sudden sense that I was illegitimate, that I was illegitimate, that mm. I just did not belong here, had nowhere else to be. Like like an illegitimate child, you're, you're here because you are, and it's a state of fact, but in terms of the culture, you're not supposed to be there. And I thought, wow, um, I don't really want to think about this, being <laughs> illegitimate. And so, but I was actually just heading into retreat, so... It, it was a theme that I sat with for days, not knowing what to do with it, but realised I just had to sit with the idea of being an illegitimate person, part of an illegitimate culture, and there's no solution to it, but you just have to own it, because I also have nowhere else to go. I mean, I, you know, I cannot have my uh, Australian citizen, citizenship cancelled and go off to somewhere else, because I'm not entitled to be a citizen of anywhere else in the world. Um, so I have to be here, and yet I have to also live into that sense that the whole of the structure that I benefit from is illegitimate, and I'm illegitimate. And I realised that my sense of legitimacy is actually going to be gifted to me by the Indigenous Australians, and that's what they want to give me. But for that to happen, we have to allow them to become the legitimising force in Australia, mm. which means all this talk about having a voice to parliament and, and treaty is, is core to us becoming the nation that we can become. And we won't become that until we actually acknowledge our illegitimacy and then give ourselves over to the mercy of the people we conquered. Mm. And I suppose also there's an element in that, you know, speaking of the shadow being the parts of us we don't want to accept as a country, we're utterly convinced we're not racist. Mm, utterly absolutely. convinced we're yeah. not racist and don't have yeah. a problem, yeah. while clearly being racist yeah. and having a problem. Comfortably racist as people yeah. from overseas observe of us. Mm. That our racism is so uh, embedded in who we are that we are mm. supremely comfortable with it. And that's the collective shadow, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Is that there's this collective sense that we're, none of us think we're racist when we have yeah. this idea of who we are as a country. Yeah. We're ignoring the shadow instead of having a, you know, a whole national healing conversation around what we can do with it. So I suppose then in that sense, each individual going through their own shadow work, that, that can help to change it. You can't collectively do shadow work, obviously. So well, I'm imagining. Well, I, th I think people can talk with each other of like mind in open and vulnerable ways and in a sense uh, work in a group confessional situation and be vulnerable and open to each other's shadow perceptions mm. and acknowledgements and recognize that to honor your shadow is not to be rejected by your colleagues. So I think there's a way to do that. But there is among us in that mystical tradition a sense that um, if I do my work, I somehow uh, make a, a deposit of healing and goodness into the collective life, that my actions don't stop with me. They go far beyond me. What is that thing about the butterfly in Japan and the storm in some other part of the world kind of thing. The chaos theory. Yeah. Butterfly, so, butterfly effect. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's mm. that kind of thing. And, and Jung mm. had that opinion. And he felt that many people doing deep inner work were actually like a, a web holding mm. 
the culture together. And I remember years ago when I was a young man, there was a woman who was a part of a prayer group and in Los Angeles, they prayed quietly for the mountains to settle their plate differences quietly and in minimal ways. And during the whole time that they were doing that, there was no big earthquake in LA. So go figure, who knows? Who knows what you are contributing to the whole common good and the planet mm. if you are doing your work. Yeah. I think mm. all we can do is just do it and know that somehow it matters. Mm. And the, the individual way in which I see it for myself is by conscious intention behaving in a certain way. Mm. I've talked to you before about going out the door on my walks in the morning and my intention is to speak to the people I pass mm. and say hello, say good morning. Yeah. And that's a way of changing all of that. Yeah. <clears throat> so we live in a culture of compassion rather than a culture of fear. Yeah. I think there's a lot there that we can't see the results of with it saying good morning to people. We may not see the results of that. We may not see the result. We yeah. might be very mm. doubtful about the mystery of what our prayer does. But what we do see the results of is in our own families and in generational things. You know, we mm. know that trauma can be passed down. We know that's a part of the human condition. We yes. know that dreams, you were talking about um, living into the fulfillment of your parents' dreams before. I think there's, there's, I've forgotten who said it, but they said the greatest indicator of the child's life is the unfulfilled dreams in the life of the parent. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I bet lots of people listening to that will go, yeah, I, I've seen that play out, yeah. whether mm -hmm. in their own life. You know, and how much of an influence are we having on one another, particularly mm. when we're not aware of of how that how our unfulfilled dreams are playing out, or how um, our own unresolved or un and resolved is not a good word there, but how the the trauma that we haven't allowed ourselves to see and to look at um, can then be visited on next generations, and we know that's true. So if that is mm. true, how you know mm. how much else is going on in the connections? Yeah. with one another on this planet. There have been some studies that show that if you smile at someone, it gets passed on seven times. Really, yeah. yeah That's just, fascinating. Just yeah. making that yeah. you know, positive, going out and saying an act of kindness ripples out seven times. And Jung was of the opinion that uh, if your parents have not done their work, a part of your inheritance is their unfinished business. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we're not as much yes we are tasked as, as Kierkegaard says we're all tasked with ourself but yeah. ourself is a collection and a, and a yeah. connect is inherently yeah. connected to all those lives that came before us Absolutely. and are around us so it's both and we are mm. tasked with ourself but we're not sitting in a silo here no mm. no there is something mm. deeper connecting all of this that, that we have a play and I mean I, I recounted to George just the other day my story of um, sitting, having breakfast at a cafe. I was sitting outside and a few people came along who were a bit rough. They, looked like they might have just, and I'm being quite serious, they might have just held up a station or something like that. They looked really rough and I was quite scared of the way they were acting, the way they were speaking, their volume, the words. It was quite scary and I, like it, it had quite an effect on me. Two minutes later, I went back to my car after the cafe because after feeling unsafe at the cafe and there was this lovely older woman who stopped and told me how she loved the colour of my car and it made her think of the first car she had and she didn't see many cars in that colour and wished me a really happy day and shook my hand. And I just thought how two vastly different daily encounters 
just shaped how I was throughout the day. How for the two minutes after the first encounter, I was scared. I was inward. I was, you know, closing down. And after the second one, I was almost singing. And I'm sure I was smiling at other people. And, you know, that there is this deep sense that what we do is it matters. It really matters on that sense. And I suppose, mm. you know, if we if we look at the shadow, then George is this this uh, part of ourselves, the parts of ourselves that we can make peace with, that we can incorporate, then we are actually able to go out into the world and impact that, you know, in a way that isn't going to, you know, it's, it's no use going out and starting a social justice agency right now when you've done absolutely no inner work and are probably just going to end up projecting everything onto everyone else and cause a chaos. The, one of the things that Brendan McKeg, my, my colleague that you all know, uh, makes uh, makes the comments about this very thing that people who get involved in peace work if they get involved in a march and they're hit with opposition if they haven't done their inner work they'll come right back at it get angry explode and the whole thing's over it's done whereas in nonviolent action we are trained to try to believe that we can hold our ground in a nonviolent way in the face of opposition mm. It's not easy, but that's what we're working for. So, George, then, obviously this is just an introduction to the idea of the shadow and the depth of the self, and, you know, it's it's uh, not something you're going to be able to <laughs> grasp and get in an hour. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I've been doing some element of this work for a few years, and I still feel like I'm in the prologue to the, the book. Mm. Um so if people are listening to this and they think, okay, I w if we want to explore the shadow individually, if we want to delve into this, you know, is, is it work that has to be done with an analyst? Is it work that has to be done with a spiritual director? Is it work you can start to do on your own? Or is this sort of deep, deep work quite dangerous to do, to just jump in at? No, I, I would say that it's work that begins with oneself. Uh, it's, it's a matter of self-reflection. I think it's also important in any serious work of self-reflection to find someone with whom you can talk and that you trust who may not be a professional but may be attentive and sympathetic to your efforts. So it's not a matter of wanting to make this an elite exercise that must be validated and sanctified by the, the professional class. It's a matter of people who really care deeply, mm. who want to learn to listen with each other. So companioning each other in any way, I think, is a step forward. My, my thing is back to that remark of Jung, everything that irritates us about others leads us to an understanding. And he said any event in our lives, when properly understood, leads us back to ourselves. So for me, daily self-reflection is the important way for me to do the shadow work. Now, I tend to do that in reference to dreams because that's my training and that's the world I've lived in since I was 15. Others may not do that. They may find other ways to do it. But it's just paying attention to oneself, not in some kind of withdrawn egotistical sense, but in order to go out the door of one's abode ready to engage the human family and all of creation in the best possible way, we do that work. So mm. it's a flow on, it's a flow through. It's, I'm not the stopping place. What I do, I do for you. 
I say to my clients, I, I have no right to sit and listen to you if I haven't done my reflection myself. That's, that's illegitimate work, and I won't. So it's just simply a part of what makes me engage the human family creatively. It's the only way I know how. It's a matter of doing. And there's a lot we haven't touched on, including the collective shadow in organizations, uh, how, sh how many organizations actually live out day to day the opposite of their mission statement. Yep. <laughs> uh, and yep. it's important material. But again, James Hollis's writing, Why Good People Do Bad Things, has brilliant material around that. And it's readable, accessible, very valuable. I mean, too, it, it comes always circles around this idea of forgiveness for me. Whenever I start to think about shadow, you, you think, well, why was Jesus spoke so much about forgiveness? Because it's so such a critical piece. You know, the the loving your enemies is such a challenge when we see that person on the television that that really annoys us, that makes us so angry. You know, part of that tension is also a recognition that we are all in this together. And this is, this is we do have an enemy, whether we know them or not. It's someone that, that we would oppose so strongly. How do we assimilate that person into the human race with us? But it's also more deeply, we find those enemies within ourselves. How do we actually forgive the enemies that we have within, the ones that we would rather not give any airtime to? How do we forgive them? in order to be able to then be able to forgive others. And that's a deeply spiritual work and there was a reason why it was called Business for Jesus. Yeah, and I suppose why grace was such an important thing, that, that encounter where you, you meet that part of yourself, the darkness, the shadow in yourself that you have so firmly believed is unacceptable and you find yourself still experiencing a sense of being loved and held, you know, mm -hmm. even with that. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we could do a few more episodes on the shadow, I think, but it's uh, it's something that you know I've heard of in varying forms for a few years. It's it's such a foreign concept, I think, to the way our even our psychology is taught, and you know, in a, in the Western world, it's something that doesn't come up really at all. Often, you know, you, you just hear of strategies and mechanisms rather than actually this is a part of who you are. Why, why do you think that is, George? Why do you think it doesn't get any mainstream air? Well, I think. Uh, People avoid it because it's painful. Yeah. I do think the way of the cross is one of the worst marketing tools one could have ever come up with for a group of people. I also uh, tend to give some um, credence to Marie-Louise von Franz's remark that Christians suffer from too much light, that there is just too much about the light of Christ, the light the light, the light. And I've seen this in talking with people that the, somehow or another we think if we can accept in belief that this Jesus has died for my sins and taken care of all the, the dirty work, that all I have to do is praise him and stand in the light. And it doesn't work. It's non-transformational spirituality. It just doesn't work. We have to engage the simple truth of ourselves. It's and really, at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, I have all sorts of wonderfully violent fantasies. You have no idea how many people I've beheaded, um, <laughs> especially parliamentarians. But the fact is, I think basically we're pretty decent people. And this allows us to activate those passionate sides of us that want to live communally and, and to live for the common good 
to work for the common good among us, to do the, as it were, the right thing for the healing of humanity and the healing of the planet. Uh, so to me, it's important to do the work because it sets us free to really get on with the outer work that needs doing. And I, I don't think the shadow is all that bad. I, my rage comes up at three, four o'clock in the morning when I wake up in the middle of the night and he has a go at this or, a, you know, takes off after that. And I just lay there chuckling, thinking, ooh, we're having quite a time of it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay. Because again, it's not going outside. Mm. I am conscious of how I feel about these things. I'm careful about my language when I talk about them. Um, so nobody is being heard. I'm just being kept on the ground rather than flying off into my self-righteous, sanctimonious behavior. And from that grounded point, I think I can do more for humanity. And that's because I'm willing to do the shadow work, even if it hurts. So I suppose the message is, if you think you know yourself, there's probably a few secrets lurking around in there. That, and, and I loved your, I think a good way to end is your sentence that even after a life of shadow work and inner village work and all of this, you still are a mystery to yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You'll never get and the that's whole okay. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, George. It's always a treat having you on. We'll have to uh, set up episode four when you're next in town. Well, thank you <laughs> to you, Dom, for this, and also Sue and Peter to you both. It's been a pleasure to see you again and to mm. share this time. Yeah. So thank you. And we will be back thank with you. another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly. <laughs>